Amen. Amen. And now Sarah will come and read uh, the Bible reading to us, after which Claire will come and preach. Our reading today is taken from Genesis chapter 12, and it's verses 1 to 20. Well, there's Bibles if you want to help yourself to one so you can follow it. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. (coughs) So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions that they had accumulated, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. As Abram travelled through the land, as far as the great site of the tree of Moreh at Shesem, at the time the Canaanites were in the land, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who appeared to him. From there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued towards the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me and they will let you live. Say that you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarah was a very beautiful woman. And when the Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken to his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. "'What have you done to me?' he said." Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much for that, uh, Sarah, or we now call you Sarai. (laughs) Maybe not. Um, If you didn't grab a Bible, you might want to. That was quite a long and meaty passage, wasn't it? And they're on the pillars, and it's page 13, Genesis chapter 12. 
uh, and we had the first 20 verses. So really meaty, but also, you know, what a juicy story, eh? As a preacher, it was like, yes, let me get stuck into that one. Uh, And uh, so I was really excited about, uh, about preaching on this subject this morning. But you know what? The tabloid press, had it existed in 2000 BC, which is when this happened, they would have had an absolute field day, just delighting in the mess that Abraham got himself into. It was such a wonderful start, wasn't it? All so holy and and blessed and doing what he was told and everything. But all too soon, he sunk into a morass of his own making. And it was as if he was unrepentant as well. There was no hint of that. So it was great tabloid fodder. So the tabloid Bible, the the scroll, uh, would have made a a field day of it. And and you know what? Um, I'm sure you all know that what you read in the papers isn't always the full picture, is it? If you ever read an article on something you actually know something about, uh, you'll soon pick up on things they're not quite as they appear in print. Um, We had a recent example of this just in my own family. Some of you will know that uh, my husband Steve had a bit of a drama up on Barossa Common, um, up at the top of King's Ride, the training area, uh, back in October, uh, when uh, I was just in the middle, well, I was actually about to step out to take the midweek communion, all robed up and tugged up, and I get a phone call from Steve, and and all he can do is sort of groan down the phone at me and say, I've collapsed on the common, and we managed to work out where he was and whatnot. So I hurled my midweek communion at Daniel, the other minister here, and legged it up on the common, grabbing Mike Patterson on the way, a friend of ours who lives on King Ride. And the pair of us were running up the uh, track towards where we thought Steve was uh, when an army truck came by. Uh, and uh, we flagged them down, and um, thankfully they came with us and took us up to Steve, and there we are. That's me huddled over. Steve's rolling around in agony under the tarpaulin they put up, um, and they were able to bring the paramedics. The ambulance was called. The paramedics couldn't get the ambulance up, so they brought paramedics up, took them back, blah, 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 uh, and all ended well in Frimley Park. Um, A couple of days later, he came home. Now, according to the papers that that, uh, the army decided to make a bit of a thing of this, good PR for them, according to the papers, uh, Steve collapsed with hypothermia. Well, that was wrong. That was a kidney stone. And Mike Patterson and me were completely airbrushed out of the story and didn't even get a mention. (laughs) So, So there you go. But anyway, Steve's fine. All is well, and God bless the the British military, I say. They did a wonderful job. Uh, But anyway, don't believe everything you read in the papers. However, what about the Bible? Now, whatever your views might be on on the actual literal truth or otherwise of Genesis, of what we've read so far, what I'm really hoping is that you're getting the idea that the Old Testament, which we're looking into now, and the New Testament have complete continuity. Uh, This is a saying on the screen from St. Augustine, and I guess a lot of you will know that, uh, this one. But the New Testament, the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. And what he's referring to is the remarkable way that these two, the two testaments of the Bible are so closely interrelated. The way to understand the New Testament is to see how it contains the fulfillment of those things that were written about in the Old Testament. Matthew's Gospel constantly shows us how the Old Testament scriptures are fulfilled by the coming of Jesus. And the Old Testament is constantly 
pointing us forwards in time, always preparing God's people for the work of Christ as recorded in the New Testament. And if you didn't hear Jeff's sermon on Noah last week, well, listen to it online because he did a marvellous job of linking that Old Testament story of Noah with the New Testament and with the person of Jesus. So I can highly recommend you catch up with that one online if you can. Well, we've already heard about, Abra- about Adam and Eve, about Cain and Abel, and about Noah. And now we're heading off into the age of the patriarchs, and that's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, his sons and descendants. And even though he's called Abram in the passage that we had read to us, I'm actually going to keep referring him to him as Abraham. His name change comes a bit later, but I just find it really hard. I kept slipping into Abraham. So please forgive me that slight discrepancy from the text. But his name does change from Abram to Abraham a little bit later. So despite the juiciness of that uh, Genesis 12 story, what the writer is actually wanting to put across to us is the importance of Abraham's relationship to God. That's the key principle he wants us to take away. And that's what we're now going to focus on too, looking at these three things. Why did God choose Abraham? How did Abraham relate to God? And what might that mean for us today? So, first of all, why did God choose Abraham? Well, number one, certainly not because he was a good guy. He wasn't, was he? He was a liar, okay? He lied to Pharaoh about who Sarai, or Sarah as she became known later. He lied to Pharaoh about who she really was. And not just the once, by the way, he repeats the lie in Genesis 20. He didn't learn from his mistake. Both times he lied to save his own skin. So God didn't choose him because, sort of, because he was someone whose innate goodness made him trustworthy. Oh, no. Well, we are actually not given any reason why God would choose him. None, none whatsoever. Genesis 12, verse 1, opens with, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household, and I will, to the land I will show you. But I personally find that ever so, ever so reassuring. God will call whom he calls, okay? This whole story is about God taking his initiative. We don't have to be super spiritual. We don't have to have everything sussed out. We don't have to be super holy. We don't even have to get it right all the time. Heaven's above. You've only just got to look at who's standing in front of you and the rest of your church leadership to know that's not true. Never think that just because some of us wear a dog collar or we stand up here and lead services or we lead the worship or we take prayers or anything like that, that we are in some way higher up the perfection ladder than you. In a million years, that is not true. Okay? All we've done, some of us, is say yes to when God called us to set out on our journey. And I know, looking at you, that many of you have said yes in other ways too, not always about having to be up front. Because God saw Abraham's potential... And he sees ours as well. Not necessarily who you are now, 
but who you can be if you are obedient and just follow God's ways. And you may have noticed that God didn't just call Abraham, but he gave him a wonderful promise as well. Verse 2, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and so on. That's Abraham's potential right there. That's what God saw in him. And bigger and better even than that, God's promises to the one man, to Abraham, are promises for the whole world as well. Verse 3, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And all peoples, who's that? You and me. You and me. We are blessed through the obedience of Abraham. So to summarise, why did God choose Abraham? Well, because he saw his potential. And he knew that through him the whole world would be blessed. A foreshadow of Jesus. Another one through whom the whole world would be blessed. Even when Jesus was nothing but a tiny baby being presented in the temple by his parents in Jerusalem, the Gospel of Luke records that a devout man called Simeon saw his potential and prophesied over him that he would be a light to the Gentiles, to all peoples, to Jews and non-Jews. So then... Let's think about Abraham's relationship with God. Moving on to verse 4. So Abraham went. In just three words, we see Abraham's relationship with God completely. The call came. Suddenly, imperative, no explanation. At 75 years old, he is to up sticks with all his household and go to somewhere that God's going to reveal to him in due course, not right now, not in advance of the journey. And Abraham's response, not on your bike, God. No, total faith. He'd no idea where he was going. He just knew he should go. So he went. As far as he's concerned, end of. He went. Hebrews 11.8 makes the same point. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. Faith expressed in obedience. And if we have faith, we are blessed along with Abraham as an inheritor of the promise made to him. Paul, writing to the Galatians, picks up the same theme in Galatians chapter 3. Those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture, which means the Old Testament, by the way, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. All nations. Because for Abraham, God was not some kind of remote, impersonal force or a malevolent being that was out to get him. God didn't need to be approached in a designated holy place through religious rituals designed to appease God's wrath. 
As we follow more of the story of Abraham in the coming weeks, what we'll see is that Abraham's God was someone who was with him in the problems of everyday life, someone who helped him to love and honour his wife, someone who helped him to have the gift of children, a God who meets his deepest, deepest needs. God was as close to Abraham as his own family. He went with Abraham wherever he travelled, and he affected his everyday life wherever he happened to pitch his tents. Abraham's relationship with God, his faith in other words, was deeply meaningful to him in every aspect of his life. Can we say the same? Can we? Do we allow God to be a part of everything we do? Or do we have God shut up in a box on a high shelf just labelled open in case of emergency? What, who is God to you, to me? Abraham's example shows us what blessings we will have if God is fully part of our everyday lives and when we take notice of his promptings. Take notice of those apparently random thoughts that might come into your mind. Pick up the phone, phone somebody, pop round, say this. Be quiet. Little thoughts, they come from God very often. Think about situations you're in. They might be situations God has put you in. Situations where he needs you to be there. To bring Jesus into a situation. To minister God's love through your care for somebody. These could be the thoughts and situations through which God is speaking to you. If you've got him in a box on a shelf, you won't hear him. God wants to be part of every single tiny, tiny little detail of your life. He doesn't want to be left out. So Abraham goes in faith and trust... And as he travelled, he built altars to the Lord to mark stages on his journey. Now, with a whiz of technology, Steve's going to point out with the laser pointer, Haran, right at the top, I hope. I can't actually read it from here. Is it pointing? Cool, I can't see it. Oh, it's behind me. (laughs) Why isn't it working up there? Okay, Haran. And then he comes down and he comes south and he goes west a bit and down and down and down until not too far from where Jerusalem is, there's Shechem. And then he moves on to um, to Bethel or between Bethel and Ai. And there he builds altars to the Lord. He claims those places for the Lord. And that was a kind of prophetic action. It was pointing out to the peoples around that this land belongs to the Lord in a special way. And it was prefiguring the day when Joshua would lead the nation of Israel back in to uh, to Canaan, to the promised land, and uh, claim it for uh, their own as the promised land. So these places, these milestones... 
uh, Abraham built altars there. So question, where's your Shechem? Where's your Bethel? What milestones have you got on your Christian journey where you can look back and think, yes, I was really close to God there. Or yes, he, he really helped me to grow spiritually. I really hope those milestones continue to happen, that they're not like 30 years ago or whenever, you know, when you became a Christian or, you know, I can think of, for me, a a day I became a Christian or a day I was filled with the Holy Spirit or a day I had just an amazing time of worship at New Wine and felt I was on a mountaintop. Hopefully those, those milestones just keep on coming. So don't ignore them. Don't minimize them. Remember them. Use them to encourage yourself when things aren't so good. But don't stay there either. Don't stay there. Don't keep harking back to what was. Keep moving. Keep looking forward to what God has for you in the future. Abraham travels on and down he goes, uh, south and west to the Negev Desert. And we need to keep on moving on in our Christian journey too. Let's not stay stuck in the past. Let's look for new challenges. So, that's the first part of the story. So far, so good, right? All going swimmingly. God's called Abraham. Abraham showed his faith, expressed in obedience. He's on his way to, he still doesn't know where, by the way. He's just moving on where necessary to where there might be some fresh grazing for his, all his livestock and a few, maybe fewer local peoples to get bothered by uh, his large encampment. But now, verse 10 It goes horribly, horribly, horribly wrong. Oh, how reassuring. (laughs) Don't you just love these Bible characters? They're so fallible. I love them. They make me feel so much better about myself. (laughs) I can just imagine these metaphorical tabloid reporters getting their pencils out and going, right, because here comes the juicy bit. Abraham goes off down into Egypt because there's a famine in Canaan. And what follows in Genesis 12, 10 to 20 is a story that's actually seriously offensive to, to our 21st century ears and particularly offensive to me uh, and any other women here. Very offensive. Sly and conniving, self-seeking and only concerned for his own safety, Abraham doesn't come out well from this story at all. Into Egypt they go and scared that his 65-year-old wife, Sarah, she's going to be lusted after by the Egyptians. He orders her to, to say that she's his sister. And by the way, many of you might know that's actually half true because they did share the same father. However, Abraham's first recorded words in, the, in Genesis are, if not an outright lie, then definitely a sinful deception. So the lie is told, and the unawares Pharaoh takes this beautiful woman to be his wife. She has no voice. We're not given any idea of what she thought about effectively being a sex slave. Abraham did all right out of it, though, didn't he? He got a whole lot of livestock, servants, and camels. Don't forget the camels. And I'm sorry, but that sounds an awful lot like pimping to me. As I said, this story is offensive when you really think about it. And one can only try to imagine, how would this story have turned out if God hadn't intervened on behalf of poor Sarah, 
who was being treated like a commodity, not an honoured wife. But intervene God does, and he doesn't intervene to punish Abraham. He intervenes to save Sarah. He sends plagues on to Pharaoh and his household, echoes of the story of Moses and uh, the Exodus, plagues onto, onto Pharaoh. And somehow, and we're not told actually how, Pharaoh works out that this is because of Sarah, and he sends her back to Abraham and shoes him on his way together with all his ill-gotten wealth. It's a really horrible story. I think I've made that point. What on earth are we to make of it, though? What do we make of this? Well, probably we shouldn't judge it by today's standards because what this story can tell us is that God stepped in when his promise to Abraham was under serious threat. Remember God's promise to Abraham that through him all peoples on earth will be blessed. And later on in Genesis 17, he reveals to Abraham that this will be through him having a son by Sarah. And if she'd stayed as one of Pharaoh's concubines, that couldn't have happened. So God stepped in to make sure his promises held true. He's not distant and disinterested. He doesn't turn his back on us when we get it wrong. He intervenes and his promises are sure and trustworthy. So if you've got yourself into a bit of a mess of your own making, maybe where you've been less than honest or upfront about something or told a white lie, even maybe for even the best of reasons it might have seemed to you at the time, if you have, then you can call on God and ask him to intervene and sort it out for you. Uh, I'm afraid I have to do that a lot. I ask God to sort out a mess I've got into and how often I can look back and see that he does just that. There was a time when I accidentally copied someone into an email where I was giving some information about that person. I probably shouldn't have been, but I was. And some others, and including their contact details. And as soon as I pressed send, I realised what I'd done. It's just the most awful feeling. Anybody else done that? It's like, ah. I tried to recall the email. I couldn't. It was awful. I felt so stupid. It was potentially, actually, an almighty mess up. But it was too late, and I couldn't do anything about it, so all I could do was really apologise to everybody. But thankfully, God stepped in and sorted it out, and he will do that for you if you ask him. But it might not be in a way that you either expect or want, but he will sort it out for you. So Abraham had a close relationship with God. He trusted him totally, even to travelling with no idea of his destination. God rescued him when he messed up, and God sorted out the mess for him. So back into Canaan they go at the end of our passage, back on track with the Lord. So I just finally want to take a couple of minutes to think about what does this story about Abraham and his relationship with God say to us today in the 21st century. So flippantly... It's not foreign office advice if you're planning to go to Egypt, okay? It's not a good idea to try and pass your wife off as your sister, chaps. It generally doesn't end well, all right? So ignore that bit. More seriously, this passage speaks to us of promise and of blessing. Abraham had no sooner received the promise than off he went. It was an expression of his faith that he trusted and acted on God's promises, even though he'd no idea where he was going. 
And even though his circumstances seemed extremely unlikely that the promise would come true, remember, he's 75, Sarah's 65, and she's barren. So how is he going to be the father of a great nation? More than the stars in the sky, it says later. So all God's calling us to do is simply to travel by faith. We, like Abraham, was stranger. he was a stranger in the land. We are strangers on earth. We don't know what life will hold for us. We don't know when we will reach our destination. We hold on to the promises of God that this life is not all there is. That through the rescuing work of Jesus on the cross, we can have faith that there is a future for us after we die, after this life is over. God commanded Abraham to go, and Jesus gave us the great commission too. Go into all the world and make disciples, he said. Spread the good news, put your faith and trust in me. Through Abraham, through Jesus, through us, all nations will be blessed. The hope is for all. So as I finish, I don't know what your situations are. How could I? I know what some of your situations are, but not all of you. I encourage you to keep travelling on, even if right now blessings seem really scarce and God seems very far away. Isaiah 50.10, in the message, the modern version says this, For anyone out there who doesn't know where you're going, Anyone groping in the dark, here's what. Trust in God. Lean on your God. And that's what Abraham did. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, which led to blessing. His faith and his obedience was the sole reason for the blessings he received. And for those of us who choose to put our faith in Jesus, we too will receive the blessing of forgiveness of our sins and life eternal with him once this life is over. So this morning, may I simply encourage you, dear friends, to travel on. Keep on keeping on. Don't give up. Don't give up on yourself, and definitely don't give up on God. Keep the faith. Keep travelling. Amen.